This morning we will be considering Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we will continue to answer the question that I posed two weeks ago. Who is this King of glory? Now, two weeks ago we considered Him as the mighty King, the one who created all things, the one who controls all things, the one for whom all things were created. And last week, we considered Him as the Holy King, the one who is above His creation, but the one who is involved in His creation, the one who commands us to be holy, for He is holy. But this morning, we will consider different traits of this King of Glory, Traits that make him a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Traits that more often than not would be seen as weaknesses instead of strengths. But they are traits for which God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above all names. What are those traits, you ask? Well, read along with me as we consider the first 11 verses of Philippians 2, and then we will focus on verses 5 through 11 and consider three aspects of the life of this King of glory. The example of Christ, the expiation of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. Let's read together Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Philippians chapter 1 and the opening verses of chapter 2, we see Paul's appeal to unity in the church. He begins by thanking God for their partnership with him in the gospel from the very first day. He prays that their love will abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. For you see, Paul is writing from prison. And he declares that that imprisonment is furthering the gospel. But only most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by his imprisonment. According to Paul, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, 
thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. And so Paul's prayer for continued support from the Philippian church is important. His prayer for knowledge and discernment is important. Why? Because they are in need of that knowledge and discernment to ascertain the motives of the ones preaching the gospel. The motivation of both preaching the gospel and the gathering to hear that preaching should be the common bond in the love of Christ. And while most preachers fit that description at this time, Paul is clear that there are others who will create disunity in their motives. His exhortation then, as we start chapter 2, begins all of them being of the same mind, having the same love. And the basis of that same-mindedness is their encouragement in Christ, their comfort from love in Christ, their participation in the Spirit in Christ, and their affection and sympathy in Christ. In verses 3 and 4, he contrasts those who proclaim the gospel in love and those who do so out of rivalry when he commands do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider yourselves more significant than others. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It is this kind of mind that Paul means when he, in verse 5, he calls the church to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is a mind of humility. It is a mind united in loving one another and building one another up. Rather than always trying to get the upper hand through rivalry and conceit, you look to the interests of others rather than thinking only of yourself. Now, note that humility does not involve not thinking of yourself. Paul's call is to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. A quote that is often attributed to C.S. Lewis, but... In researching it, there's a lot of debate as to whether he actually said it. But it's a good statement nonetheless, so I'm going to use it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. That is the idea that Paul has in mind here. And consider the source of the mindset for which Paul is calling the King of Glory, Christ Jesus. The ESV translates the end of verse 5 as, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The New American Standard and the King James translate it, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the NIV, applying a thought-for-thought thought translation rather than a word-for-word, word, translate it as, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The mindset of Unity and humility to which Paul calls the church is the mind of Christ. And in verses 6 and 7, Paul demonstrates how Christ had that mind as he considers our first topic, the example of Christ. There, he writes this, Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, 
We could camp out in these two verses and discuss all of the various heresies that might arise from their misinterpretation. Trust me, there are many. But quickly, I want to focus on three things that we should be concerned about. First, the phrase, the form of God. The Greek word, morphe, can be used to describe outward appearance. But here we see much, much more than that. The idea is that Christ's very nature is that of God. We conclude that in a couple of ways. First, later on in the passage, we see more than an appearance. We see a nature. The same Greek word is used when we are told that Christ took the form of a servant. That doesn't mean that he simply looked like a servant. It means that his very nature was the nature of a servant. Second, we read that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Greek word there is harpogmos and can be translated as something to hold on to or something to be used to one's advantage. And that's how the NIV translates that passage. In other words, Christ already had equality with God because he was in his very nature God. And the point of these verses is that God is demonstrating his humility. Christ was indeed God, the creator of all things, the one by whom all things hold together and for whom all things were created. Scripture makes this clear. He is the mighty king. But here Paul's not directing us to his might. He already has that. It's not something he needs to pursue. It's not something he seeks to maintain. He always has had his power, and he always will. Third, in verse 7, Paul writes that Christ made himself nothing. The New American Standard translates the verse as, He emptied himself. Now, what does that mean? Again, ripe for heresy. The Greek word is echinosin. And if we look at the other times in Scripture Paul uses this word, he uses it four times in total, we will see that what is meant is how the King James actually translated. King James translates verse 7 as, He made himself of no reputation. He didn't change himself into a servant instead of God. He didn't stop being God. He wasn't emptied of his power. That's not what the passage is saying. Instead, Paul is saying that Christ accomplished what he came to accomplish. Not through his power, but through his servanthood. I'll use just one example to demonstrate that point. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, here Paul uses that same Greek word for emptied. He's not suggesting that the cross could actually lose its power, but he's trying to say that if he were to try to persuade with words of eloquence, the emphasis shifts. It shifts Focus on something other than that power. In a similar way, Christ, being described as having made himself nothing, 
does not eliminate his divine nature. It simply means that some other aspect of his nature is the focus. He is mighty, but he is both mighty and humble. And it is, hu- it is his humility, his emptiness, that is demonstrated in his coming in the form of a servant. So, though he was in the form of God, he took the form of a servant. In other words, consider what the scripture says of him. His power to create. His power over creation. His being the reason for creation itself. This mighty king condescended to take on the characteristics of a lowly servant. The Greek word there is doulos. And can accurately be described as a slave. And if we think of the things that Christ did, there is no better word to describe what he came to do. In John 13, we are at the Last Supper, and we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And when he had finished, we read this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Here, Jesus sets the example for them. He doesn't dispute them calling him teacher and Lord. In fact, he affirms that they're right to do so. But that's not the point. Those are not the things to be grasped by him. He already has them. He is Lord. But his status as teacher and Lord alone would not demonstrate the mind that he wants them to have. For the mind that he wants them to have is a mind of humility in every circumstance. So, the Lord of all creation, the King of glory, removed his outer garment, grabbed a bowl of water and a towel, and did what the lowliest servant would typically do, wash their dirty feet. Christ's example to mankind was not to interact with one another based on the level of one's power and authority. If so, the Lord of the universe would have nothing to do with us. We are sinful creatures. As we considered last week, the mighty king is also a holy king. He is so much above his creation that applying that mindset would separate us from him forever. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If he can only interact with us based on who he is, he's not going to interact with us. But instead, Christ's example is to set aside one's position in humility and grant mercy. This was demonstrated to John and James, who came to Jesus seeking places of authority. One to sit on his right hand, and the other to sit on his left. And it was in that context that Christ declared, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Get that. Even the Son of Man, not an incredibly wealthy man, not the most brilliant scientist who has ever lived, not the president of the most powerful nation on earth, even the King of kings and Lord of lords, the mighty King, the holy King, the King of glory, even He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Which brings us to the second aspect of the life of Christ, the expiation of Christ. You see, Christ's example didn't end simply in taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In verse 8 we read, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, consider the cross for a moment. In general, the Roman Empire would not crucify its own citizens. Only in exceptions of high treason would that be considered. It was the cruelest form of torture used for execution in the Roman Empire. And it was typically lower classes that experienced its horrors. Care to fathom a guess as to the common recipient of that punishment? Slaves. It is for this reason that Paul declares that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What kind of Savior gets himself crucified? In Galatians 3.13, Paul tells us, It is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed. This so-called Christ is cursed. His crucifixion demonstrates that. And we see the scoffing at His crucifixion, pointing to that seeming folly of following one who finds himself crucified. In Matthew 27, 39 and following, we see that perceived folly when we read this. And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Him, saying, He saved others. He can't save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from that cross, and then we'll believe in Him. Mighty kings don't hang on a cross. Holy kings don't get put to death for blasphemy. In the eye of the world, Christ is folly. He's a stumbling block. But Paul continues after saying that in 1 Corinthians 1.23, when he writes in verse 24, But, there's a but there. Sure, he's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, brothers and sisters, in the example given to us by Christ in both his life and his death, we see the truth that is missed by the world. True power is demonstrated not by horses and chariots, not by money and influence, not by what the world sees as power. No, Christ's power was demonstrated in his humility. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, Peter attacked one of the soldiers and did what any normal person would do in defending their Lord and Savior. He cut off his ear. But Jesus told him to put that sword back in its sheath. And he asks Peter a simple question. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus didn't have a power problem. If Jesus wanted to, He wouldn't be arrested. If Jesus wanted to, all of those soldiers would be dead. But the Scripture must be fulfilled. And so He gave Himself to them. He didn't empty Himself of His power. He emptied Himself of the use of that power. He gave up the fact that He could call twelve legions of angels. But He brought His power to nothing to fulfill Scripture. For 700 years prior, the Scripture speaks of God's purpose in sending Him. In Isaiah 53, we read, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." The mighty and holy king did not save us by sending twelve legions of angels to defend his son. He saved us by crushing him. In his humility, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The most effective demonstration of God's power to save was through the humiliation of his son. Not by his power, but by his humiliation, by his stripes, we are healed. That's not the end of the story. The humiliation of Christ results in the exaltation of Christ. And that is the third and final aspect of the life of the King of Glory that we will examine this morning. That exaltation. Verses 9-11 through 11 of Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the Greek word for exalted here means to put someone in the most important position of honor and power. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament 
in Psalm 97, 9, where we read this. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And just as Christ's expiation fulfilled prophecy, His exaltation fulfills prophecy. In Isaiah 45, we read, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, in our righteousness and strength, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Peter declares in Acts 4, 11 and 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So according to Isaiah 45, 22, to whom must we turn to be saved? We must turn to God. And according to Acts 4.12, to whom must we turn to be saved? We must turn to Jesus. According to Isaiah 45.23, to whom will every knee bow? Every knee will bow to God. And according to Philippians 2.10, to whom will every knee bow? Jesus. You see, when we are told in Philippians 2 verse 9 that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. It is not the bestowing of something that wasn't there previously. On that point, commentator Frank Thielman writes this. Occasionally, scholars have thought that the first response meant that Christ would receive a condition or authority greater than that which he possessed before his condescension. But, since it is difficult to imagine a station higher than that of being in very nature God... And equality with God, which was the place that Christ occupied before his condescension, the term exalted is better understood as a reference to God's exaltation of Jesus to a position of recognizable superiority over all creation. Although he was acting in a way that was fully consistent with his divine status, when he humbled himself, his resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand makes his superiority more fully evident to the creation over which he rules. In other words, Christ's work does not establish his status. It justifies his status to his creation. The God of the universe demonstrates his glory to his creation, not only by his acts of power, but by acts of condescension and humility. It is by His power that we are created, and it is by His humiliation that we are saved. As we conclude this morning, consider the example of Christ, God the Son, the King of glory, the all-powerful and holy King, one with no equal in the universe. He humbled Himself to the point of death for us. Are we too mighty? Or too holy to humble ourselves for the sake of others? The one to whom even the winds and the waves obey, 
bore our burdens on Calvary. Are we of such status that we refuse to bear one another's burdens? Of the passage we've considered this morning, Charles Spurgeon writes, What we are taught here is the great truth that Jesus Christ, though once He stooped to the lowest shame, is now exalted to the very highest glory. And even the devils in hell are compelled to own the might of His power. We are also to learn from this passage that the way to ascend is to descend. He who would be chief must be willing to be the servant of all. The King of kings was the servant of servants. And if you would be crowned with honor by and by, you must be willing to be despised and rejected of men. J.C. Rowell writes this, The Lord calls those blessed who are poor in spirit. He means the humble and lowly-minded and self-abased. He means those who are deeply convinced in their own sinfulness in God's sight. These are they who are not wise in their own eyes and holy in their own sight. They are not rich and increased with goods. They do not fancy and need nothing, or they do not fancy they need nothing. They regard themselves as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Blessed are all such. Humility is the very first letter of the alphabet of Christianity. We must begin low if we would build high. We have to consider Christ's example of humility. And when we do, we will realize that we are without excuse in how we work towards the common bond in which Paul calls us. Unity comes from humility, not rivalry. Bearing one another's burdens comes from elevating, not from elevating ourselves above our brothers and sisters, but considering them more significant than we are. The King of Glory considered us more significant than Himself. And we fall woefully short of that. We should be reminded of that when we see a brother and sister in need whom we consider woefully unworthy of our attention. Perhaps in doing so, we will be more patient. Perhaps in doing so, we will show more love. Perhaps in doing so, we will be conformed to Christ's image. Let's pray. Father, there is none greater than You. And yet, You came in the form of a servant and rescued us from our sin. Father, give us this mind. We know that we cannot begin to match You in power, in holiness, in mercy, and in justice. We all fall short of the glory of God. Remind us of that each day, Father, as we deal with our families, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Make that truth humble us, to give us patience, to give us a forgiving spirit, to give us a long-suffering servant's heart that we would serve you in doing so and that we would glorify you in our good works. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.